Good morning and welcome to Convocation on this rainy last day of November. We're glad that each of you are here and as we come together to develop a sense of community and engage with our shared values. I remind you that two, for two Convocation points, you need to make sure to scan in, make good use of this opportunity before you scan out. I understand that you come into this space with thoughts and concerns about other important parts of your life that are going on, and I ask you to do your best to set those aside for these next 50 minutes and to be open to learning something new. I'm gonna take the next 30 seconds or so to be silent while you put away all your electronic devices and then try to settle your your thoughts and your worries. One very helpful way to focus your heart and mind is to close your eyes and think about your breath. So I, I invite you to do that now. Thank you. My name is Jenny Holsinger, and I teach sociology here at EMU. I'd like to introduce my colleague in the sociology program, Gaurav Patanya. Gaurav also teaches peace building and development courses at the graduate and undergraduate levels here. He's previously taught at Georgetown, uh, Catholic University of America, and George Washington University in DC. And he served as a visiting scholar at University of Massachusetts and University of Southern California. He's earned three of his graduate degrees from JNU, which is located in New Delhi, India. His ethnographic research in cultural sociology addresses issues of caste, class, and racial discrimination among diaspora and focuses on contemporary identity movements among university students in the US. He has recently authored a book titled University as a Site of Resistance with Oxford University Press. He's part of the editorial board of the South Asia Journal, Research Journal. He's an anti-caste writer, an award-winning poet, um, and activist, and he's currently working on his memoir it's a pleasure for me to work with Dr. Patanya. I will turn it over to him now to introduce our special guest and to lead our focus on faith in education for social justice. Thank you, Jenny, for such a kind introduction. And uh, I thank Brian for, for hosting us here and organizing all this. Uh, and welcome all, uh, and very good morning to everyone. Uh, though it's a rainy morning, but very good morning. And I want to thank, uh, uh, before I start, I want to thank Debbie and Betty for driving our 
uh, our guest speaker today from all the way from DC uh, in a rainy day. So I'm really excited to hear and introduce uh, Kathy. And as Jenny was introducing me as an anti-caste activist, so you will hear more about caste today and our guest speaker will, will reflect on many of her experiences. So let me briefly, and first of all, Kathy, welcome uh, to our institution. Uh, which is uh, <coughs> not only honors the, the people who are uh, the flag bearer of social change, but also indicates values of social justice uh, through its teaching and its community work. Um, Kathy, Sh Kathy Shridhar, uh, a champion of social and economic justice for, for socially marginalized groups in India for, for five decades and retired from her job as the founding director of Unitarian Universalist Holding India program that she has created, and she'll talk about it later. Uh, for more than four decades, she worked with communities to bring grassroots changes. Uh, she has identified transformational leaders and organizations who are now at the forefront of India's uh, struggle to build a more just and equitable society. Before serving with the uh, Unitarian Universal uh, Holding India program, Shirdar was renowned in the adoption community. She facilitated the placement of 1,000 children in the United States from Mother Teresa's orphanage in India, all the while, all the while she working as a volunteer. She herself adopted two children from these orphanages and raised them as a single mother. Uh, for her lifetime contribution, Kathy was awarded the first ever Reverend Annie Margaret Barr Award for by the International Convocation of Unitarian Universal Women for her incredible accomplishment in the area of social empowerment. The American Embassy in Delhi hosted a special gathering to honor Kathy Shridhar's outstanding contribution in India. Kathy is the Director Emerita of the Holding India program after she retired in 2012. Uh, Kathy graduated from Harvard in 1955 and worked for uh, John F. Kennedy's election campaign and then later served as the first Peace Corps uh, director in Afghanistan in early 1960s. Uh, during her later appointment in India with Peace Corps, her path crossed with an Indian economist, Mr. Shridhar, who would later became her husband. Since that point, she developed an encyclopedic knowledge of the country. Uh, she was a counselor and a colleague to a partner group's for right, uh, forging tight personal bonds over the years. Uh, Shridhar developed the grassroots partner concept after the after Unitarian Universal hired her in 1984. So the Holding India program that she represented in India, uh, headed uh, by her, was helped fund dozens of groups, social groups in, uh, in India since 1984. The group have fought to enforce land rights for indigenous tribes, free laborers enslaved by the landlords, educate child laborers, and empower poor women. They have also demanded dignity and equality for Dalits. And Dalits is the term that you will hear uh, the explanation of it. Kathy supported organizations like Shramjeevi or People's Organization, a trade union for freed labor 
and uh, which encountered 16 families one day in 1988, the union, a holding partner, through funded through its affiliated non-government organization, has a disarmingly simple strategies for releasing laborers from bondages. Uh, legally, landlords have no recourse. In 19, 1976, Indian law outlaws bonded labor, though it is widely flouted. On the same day in 1988, the 16 families declared themselves free. Backed by the, backed by the union, they illegally took possession of 16 acres and began planting and harvesting crops. In all, the union has forced and released from bondages of 15,000 laborers. Uh, it went to court to gain first conviction ever of a landlord for violating the 1976 laws. Uh, she has been instrumental in bringing anti-caste activists and scholars from India to the landmark conference in Dalit history, the Durban conference. If you read anything about caste, uh, Durban conference in 2001 was the landmark conference uh, for scholars where the race-caste debate started for the first time. And Kathy has been uh, instrumental in organizing that conference. So that is one of the great contributions she had. She continues her activism supporting anti-caste activism in the US. She has been so generous to accept my invitation to speak to my students several times in my class, uh, wherever I taught. Uh, Kathy lives in, <coughs> in DC and she, has, she raised three children who are now in their 40s. Two of them, Anita and Dave, were adopted from India. Susan Shiridhar is a professor of philosophy and also the director of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies Department at Boston University. Uh, Kathy's legacy continues on in the countless lives she has changed, bringing smiles to millions of faces through all the phenomenal programs she has built to serve solidarity and historically marginalized community service. Kathy is a FIRES leader, and EMU is proud to honor Kathy for all that she has been doing tirelessly and passionately. So um, we will, so when I was asking, so she never had any picture, like single picture of her own. She always is with people, and that's her passion. That's what we call the, the, the loving and living with people all the time. So before I actually ask Kathy uh, uh, some of the questions around her activism, I wanted to start with a, because it's a, it's a new context of caste and untouchability, I wanted to show a quick video of three, four minutes, which is by a friend from New York who is a writer and wrote a, wrote a book on, on her experience. So let's play this video of uh, uh, three minutes. Uh, <coughs> The first time I knew that I was inferior, I probably was 18 months old. I knew that we were untouchables. Untouchability means actually untouchability. You cannot touch them. Caste is a forced occupation based on your birth. 
When I first came to America, people treated me equally. In fact, even in the beginning, I used to feel, uh, what if they touch me, uh, they're, you know, they're going to be polluted. One time, he, my, a boyfriend of mine was eating from something that I already touched, and he was going there, and I said, no, 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 stop, 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 I touched it, I touched it, and his heart broke, like, uh, you're not in, a, in, in India anymore. Hinduism, more or less, is an ideological, religious prop for this social system that is caste. Brahma, the creator, uh, the Brahmins are supposed to have come from uh, the forehead and the Kshatriyas from the arms, merchant caste from the thighs, service caste from legs. And untouchables are not part of any of uh, Brahma, the creator. What makes them untouchable is they are assigned hereditary duties that are considered filthy and menial by the Indian society. Like the hardest jobs are theirs and the filthiest jobs are given to them. Based on these different occupations, there are about, in my area, 52 different subcasts within untouchability. And my family is called Mala. Mala means uh, people who do agricultural labor. And there are others who do like removing dead animals, burning the dead people, and carrying away human shit. My stories, my family stories, were not stories in India. They were just life. Your life is your caste, your caste is your life. At 26, I came to America, where people know only skin color. Only in talking to some friends I met here did I realize that my stories my family stories are not stories of shame. It's not healed. It is not healed. The advice I give to untouchables that are still in India, I think that the best thing they can do is get jobs like I have in a crucial industry like MTA, if we don't work, then everything comes to a screeching halt. And it really gives a sense of like, you know, yes, your, your services are crucial to the society. That gives me a lot of self-confidence that I didn't have. I'm not going to be like saying America is great, but yeah, for untouchables, yeah, it is. And for me, it's uh, like pop music, Madonna, Bob Dylan, and it's uh, intellectually free world. It's an escape for us. I would be judged by my nationality, but not by my caste. That gave me courage to think, what is untouchability and why am I an untouchable? I don't think uh, uh, there's any other solution for caste than demolishing the existing structure because caste had a particular economic uh, function and that's the purpose it served, division of labor. This is not a kind of thing that I can say, oh, change your minds and stuff. You break the structures that necessitate this sort of exploitation. Unless you break the structures, uh, this is all going to be a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Thank you, Clay, for showing that. Uh, so uh, now uh, it's just to g give you a sense that how even in the U.S. that uh, the how do people who come uh, as diaspora 
feel about cast and this is one of the story but now let's uh, talk to Kathy about her experience. So Kathy, I just want to start with, uh, now you know a little bit of background of caste and untouchability. Kathy, you served 50 years in India. And uh, uh, in the first place, I want to know what, I'm curious to know what uh, brought to you to India in the first place. Okay, hmm. so um, first of all, thanks so much, Professor Dr. Patanya. For, for the kind invitation to talk with you all, but I'm really most interested in all your thoughts and questions. Um, I, I come from a, an immigrant Jewish family, and since my grandfather was the only one in his family who was able to migrate to the United States, the rest of our family was killed in the Holocaust. So I grew up learning about persecution and exclusion from childhood. My parents were also activists, and they inspired me to question and challenge injustice and inequality. And you've talked a little bit about uh, Harvard and how I got to Peace Corps, and then went to India. And when I was in, in India for about a week, I was introduced to Sridhar. Um, in South India, the last name is the same as the first name. So he was Sridhar and Mr. Sridhar. And um, he came from a high caste Brahmin family. Um, all of his six siblings had arranged marriages to the same very high caste. But after a while, he took me to meet his parents in South India. He did not tell them that, about our relationship. He just said, we're going for lunch. And we're sitting for lunch like here, and where Michelle is sitting. Uh, somebody walked by, and the next thing I knew, the servants came and took all of our food and the dishes away from the table and threw them all out. And I said what, to Sridhar, what on earth happened here? And he said, the shadow of a Dalit or an untouchable had fallen on the food, and therefore it was polluted and contaminated and had to be trashed. And that's how I learned about untouchability. So Sridhar fought against the caste system, and we got married and moved to Washington. And after a while, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I called his father and said, just come see him from India before he dies. And his father said he died when he married you. And that was the end of that. So um, when the Unitarian Universalists asked if I would be the first director of a new fund they were starting in India, I decided that we would search for and support the most oppressed and excluded peoples in India, and that is Dalits and tribal people. There's all the tribal girls in that picture there, um, particularly the women in these groups in their struggles to, to uh, fight injustice. So you've heard about the caste system, so I don't need to 
repeat that. But as I traveled for the fund in the rural areas, I saw that the practice of untouchability pervades all aspects of Indian life. I mean, Dalits are forced to live in a separate part of the village. They are excluded from all aspects of economic, social, and even religious life. They deny jobs, land, healthcare, and schooling. They may not drink water from the same wells as the upper caste or drink tea from the same teacups. They can't even walk through the upper caste part of the village. And um, I think the film showed how they're compelled to for perform all sorts of unclean jobs. The women are also victims of violence, including rape, but untouchability does not seem to apply to sexual relations. So the women bear the triple burden of caste, class, and gender. So do you want me to go on? So, you want me to? No, thank you for sharing that, Kathy. I also want to tell you that the, all the work that Kathy has done, you know, there are all these books that you see on the screen. Many of them have, uh, these writers, they have dedicated their books to Kathy because of her work with, with women organization, Dalit organization. So Kathy, how did you get involved with the, the anti-caste struggle in India? Uh, what motivated you to do such an, you know, taking up this activism? Well, if I wanted to work with the most persecuted, excluded, <coughs> oppressed, marginalized group in India, that's who it had to be, right? And uh, there's a picture here of Sachivati. Um, ah, here's, yeah, this one. Yeah. So um, th that's what I did. So what I did was I went around to all the villages and looked for possible um, leaders and organizers um, with whom I could work. Um, and since you have heard about all of the caste mm -hmm. problems, do you want me to talk a little bit about Martin now? Yeah, sure. Uh -huh. Yeah, that, okay. that's the, and, and also uh, um, about, uh, so she, uh, she worked with a, uh, so this is a, this is the, the person she worked with uh, and funded her, his organization who recent, later got a Robert Kennedy Award, International Award. So, Kathy, you want to share uh, his story? Yeah, I, I, I want to just talk a little bit about him because now you all got to be completely depressed, right? Uh, after hearing this. Uh, I want to tell you about Martin, but he's just one of the many committed, courageous leaders who challenged this unjust and unequal system. So Martin is a Dalit whose family converted to Christianity, right? Though he was a child laborer, his mother recognized that he was brilliant. So she got him admitted to a Jesuit school where the Jesuits forced him to clean the toilets because he was a Dalit. And even if Dalits, 
convert to other religions, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Sikhism, they're still treated as members of the caste into which they were born. So he became a lawyer and he went to work again for a Catholic development aid agency. And he quickly learned that their aid program or project uh, excluded Dalits and women. So one day when he was working in a different village, the upper caste people in his original village came and killed four Dalits, just murdered them because they had set foot in the other part of the village. And the Christian, quote unquote, Christian agency refused to file a case against the murderers. So he started his own organization called Navsarjan or New Beginnings based on Dr. Ambedkar's mantra, educate, organize, advocate, or advocate, organize, right. So Martin informed the Dalits about their legal rights and then he taught them how to organize so they could demand the rights themselves. He set up a legal clinic that would help all castes, not just Dalits, but all castes, provided they would drink tea from the same cups as Dalits would. So one day while I was visiting, we were all sitting on the floor, not nearly as nice as this. We're all sitting on the floor and a Brahmin, high caste Brahmin widow comes in. She'd been thrown out of her house. It is the custom in India sometimes that when a husband dies, the family throws out the widow. So she had, was all by herself and she came and asked Martin for help. And the, but, the, but in order for her to get help, she had to drink tea from the same cup as Gaurav or me. And uh, we sat on the floor for six hours, six hours, her hand was like this. She could not bring herself to touch the cup because then she would be polluted and then her community would no longer accept her. So she finally drank and he took the case and they won. So. Do you want any more? So, so I, uh, you know, just to uh, give the context that, you know, India got independence in 1947 and f 1950, we have a constitution which completely abolished caste and untouchability practices, ah, untouchability practices. So, um, Kathy, for your experience working so long in India, what, of course, it seems like it's not working in the ground. I have so many stories we hear of untouchability still. So what government policies are working on ground and what doesn't work or what works? Uh, how long do you have? Are you going to be here till next semester? <laughs> okay, so uh, before the government policies, I just want to talk one minute about the manual scavenging because um, the, 
the lowest of the lowest of the low caste are manual scavengers. And they're the people who have to, in the villages where there's no plumbing, um, the women defecate in the fields. And the women manual scavengers go and collect the feces with their bare hands and put them on top of their heads in baskets. You can imagine what happens when it rains. So, and the men have to clean out the sewers. So they have the filthiest, dirtiest jobs and they don't feel they can do anything else because they were born in that caste. So Martin, before we get to government policies which have outlawed this theoretically, when Martin told the women that manual scavenging is against the law, they said they were terrified because if they didn't do this work, the upper caste would kill them. And they had been murdered. So, now Sargent taught them they had the power to organize and go on strike. And if they, without them, the village would stink. And eventually, they contributed one rupee a month, and the village stank, and that was the end of that. So, when we nominated, do I talk about the Pope? No. When, <laughs> I'm yeah, going to talk about the, government, me, the let, government policies yeah, first. But let, let me uh, just also give the, uh, con that how Kathy, uh, not only in India, but try to raise this global awareness about the untouchability. So in, in 2003, is it three, Kathy, 2003, when yes. she approached National Geographic, and National Geographic actually covered this story of untouchability uh, in India. And that's 20 years ago, but when you look at the news now, even now, it actually has not changed, the, the mindset has not changed much. And that's why when you look at this picture, so we are losing thousands of people who actually are cleaning the, the, the sewage, uh, the manholes where they go down bare chest and bare foot, and eventually they die. So we are losing so many people, and that's where the policies are not uh, working on, on ground. I am going to yeah. get to the policies. Oh. Since you asked the question, uh -huh. he's my professor. I have to answer his question, right? Is that what I have to do? Right. All right. But before I do that, when we nominated Martin for the uh, Kennedy Award, um, I asked, what else do you want? And he says, well, my mother who had never been out of this small village in Gujarat. She wants to meet the Pope. So I said, uh, Martin, excuse me, I'm Jewish. I don't have any uh, connections with the Pope, but the Kennedys do. The Kennedys do, and the Kennedy family, he brought his mother to Washington, Martin got his award, and after they left, they went to Rome, and the Kennedys introduced his mother to the Pope. And every time I go there, his mother has me to dinner because she thinks I did it. I had nothing whatsoever to do <laughs> Just Anyway, so as you mentioned, since India became independent in 1947, that's 75 years ago, the Indian government has enacted numerous 
quote, progressive laws, policies, and programs that say they're going to end caste discrimination and reduce poverty and inequality, and everybody is going to have a, a pot full of good food. So, uh, first, the Indian Constitution, written by Dr. Ambedkar, who was himself a Dalit. Do they know about you? Do they know what you're going to do? Are we allowed to say that? Yes. <laughs> you know they're going to make a documentary about Dr. Ambedkar, who wrote the Indian Constitution, and he is going to star as Dr. Ambedkar. Yes? Yes. But he has not asked. I asked if Michelle was going to be his wife, and evidently not. But I could be his mother. I mean, I, anyway, anyway. So, so first, Dr. Ambedkar, who wrote the, uh, he was a lawyer. He went to Columbia University, and uh, he wrote the Indian Constitution, which theoretically. Uh, abolished the practice of untouchability. It does not seem to have done so. Um, subsequent laws promoted reservations, affirmative action, and all sorts of economic and social programs that are supposed to reduce poverty and inequality. However, when it comes to implementation, the people in power that is, the upper castes, politicians, bureaucrats, businessmen, landowners, police, I'm sorry, even doctors and professors, and non-government organizations, they have not been willing to enforce those laws or implement any programs that would result in reducing their own power their own wealth, their own influence or status. So, for example, the police are required to protect rights, but they usually are bought off and they don't investigate any complaints brought by Dalits. So, uh, so there have been lots of laws, there have been lots of programs, there has been some success, but basically, People in power don't want to give up their power, so a lot of those programs have not been successful. So, what? Okay. Well, thank to tell you, you what Kathy. I think there's a lot to talk about the also <laughs> the work that she, you have done in uh, you know the funded all the organizations. Uh, I wanted to ask that, but let me open this to to uh, open the Wait. floor to yeah. Uh, we have we have few minutes left, so we can. We have a few you, minutes if left. If you, yeah, if we can have some questions, so yeah, right. we can do just. I I do want to just say, if I have two minutes, two minutes, that's it. Okay, so what do we do now? How do we respond to this challenge? Well, you've heard. I think you all studied. Don't give a person a fish, but teach him how to fish. Is, have you all heard that expression? Yes. How does it help to give you a fish if you don't have any access to a pond? How does it help to teach you how to farm if you don't have any land? So those development programs have only worked for those people who have some So you, you don't like the word development? 
I do not like it as it is traditionally used. Mm -hmm. And if people have been oppressed for 5,000 years, it takes more than a three-year project, as you all say, to, thank you, I see somebody is nodding there, to make a difference. So basically what we promote is Dr. Ambedkar, edu educate, agitate, organize, to demand your rights. That's basically, we support what they call in India struggle groups, people who are taking on tough issues and organizing and fighting for their rights. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. So any questions for? Nobody's got a question, yes. Ah. <laughs> Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Sarah Kennel. I'm a freshman here at EMU. My question for you would be, in terms of forming protests to go against the caste system, generally the role is the 3.5% of the population needs to be a part of it for it to have trajectory of success, but if government is already, I suppose, something that has been solved, would a protest be effective? Or what other creative methods have come into consideration in order to actually promote change? That is a truly wonderful question. And that is what the group struggle with. Because, but one answer to that question, and you might have another one, is that we're not, the, the, these groups are local, uh, village, community groups. So the, there are farmers who protested and successfully uh, in India but they, weren't, they were not Dalit farmers. Um, in, the, in the rural community, if the, if the Dalits and the manual scavengers just have a sit-down strike, they just refuse to work. They just refuse to, to do anything, and somebody will help them with a strike fund, then they can protest, because if they don't do the work, the upper caste, don't have any servants <laughs> left. So this, these are, uh, I wouldn't say they're local meaning like this room, but they're not statewide, they're not statewide protests. So that it, within a community, the, the, the Dalits can protest and have sit down strikes. But on a massive scale, they, they have not, they have not. Do you have another answer to that? I mean, we <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. You, you are right. I think the uh, the problem is uh, that all these uh, socially marginalized groups are not coming together. To there is no common platform where they can come together and build a powerful force. I think that is missing in the movement. Uh, so we're not doing, so there are, of course, global movement going on, but it's still not as powerful 
and uh, you know I don't know what are the reasons that could one can think of maybe the is it the ideology or you know a lot of internal differences and all or also this is the kind of backlash by the government that how government doesn't want people to to uh, you know form unions and fight against because the way uh, there's so much about the caste system that how it is even even the even Dr. Ambedkar the way he is uh, kind of appropriated by the system by the government and uh, that's also kind of you think a lot of misguiding of of the movement but that's a whole long debate but let's come to the we, we didn't come Brian how much time do we have five minutes five let's come minutes. to the we didn't come to the US part yet we are oh. still uh, struggling in India yeah. oh so my Kathy, goodness. what do you think of the 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 anti-caste struggle in the US well First of all, <laughs> uh, you pointed out that there are four and a half million Indians living in the U.S. I certainly cannot speak for them. I certainly can't speak for the upper castes. But I do know that U.S. law does not recognize caste discrimination as a form of exclusion, similar to race or gender or religion. It's Discrimination on the basis of caste is not illegal here. And, but caste has followed Indians to the United States. As some of you may have read, oh, there are separate temples for Dalits in the United States. Catholic churches have separate churches for Dalits and non-Dalits. Sikh Gurdwaras. Uh, mosques, they're still segregated in this country, and it is not against the law to do so. Um, I've read about Silicon Valley and Cisco, where the upper caste Indians, who are the multi-million dollar mm, high-tech engineers and computer experts, they have refused to hire Dalits or untouchables and they are not required to do so. So caste follows Indians even in the United States. In fact, two University of California professors, you probably have read, are suing because they're opposing including caste as a matter of discrimination. So, Ben Morsi, who is a, a friend of ours and a Dalit activist in the United States, was asked to speak at Google, and she arrived at Google, and they threw her out. She was not allowed in. Hmm? Mm -hmm. So, more to yeah. <laughs> The Black Lives Matter group is sometimes working with, with the Dalit groups to see if they can change the law, but it doesn't look so now. Thank you, Ken. Uh, any final? We have we have two, three minutes left, yeah. Only one question? Well, then we have, mm -hmm. to, if, if, if <laughs> we have to end then by saying Jai Bim, which is long live Dr. Ambedkar. Everybody, <laughs> Jai Bim. Ah. <laughs> Any final question? Michelle. 
otherwise i have the last question for you any <laughs> okay so uh, it's about because you uh, you served in india or you know throughout your life in a in a faith based organization which was unitarian universal so in what ways these faith based organization can contribute to the anti caste struggle oh boy <laughs> support it <laughs> support it go the woman that demonstrate but there if there were demonstrations um i i don't know what else they can do support support those groups in india they could support those groups in but india but how would they support when they are not even aware of these uh, these well, that now you're all aware you're all going to go to india <laughs> right and work with some yeah. of these groups no yeah. if you if you do yeah. we'll we'll introduce you and you can work with some of those wonderful girls mm -hmm. that that are in that picture good good, good. so no <laughs> yeah i think it's the is the education that uh, it's the education. we uh, and 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 i think even in in india there is no one actually talking about caste in here it's also kind of almost there is no conversation so i think uh um with this kind of conversation we should open the caste conversation and that is what is needed and as we did with gender as we did with race so i think starting this caste conversation would 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 lead to some kind of social change so conversation is not happening i talk to when i work with indian diaspora there is complete silence on the issue of caste but as you seen and you can read about it that how much what goes on inside so uh, uh thank you kathy for actually well, you know agreeing to you to all. initiate this conversation Before you go, thank you, Gaurav and Kathy, once more. Um, but some campus announcements, if we can get that on the screen before you go. <laughs> Here we go. All right. Uh, today at 4 p.m. is the last Souter Science Seminar of the semester in Science Center 106. Um, 9.30 tonight is Himsing in... Um, the chapel up the hill. Tomorrow at noon um, in the East Dining Room, Anthony Kerr will be sharing personal experiences and insights on Israel and Palestine. Uh, and I believe uh, lunch tickets will be provided, so come hear stories and, and share with him. Yeah, he's, he's here with us. <laughs> Then at 5 p.m. tomorrow evening, uh, the interfaith discussion also in the East Dining Room. Meal tickets again provided for those who don't have swipe access. Uh, and Friday at 6 p.m., if you've been excited by the World Cup, come for a FIFA tournament uh, and for uh, intramural glory and a t-shirt in the den. Saturday at 2 p.m. is men's basketball versus Hampton-Sydney, so show up there as well. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. Thanks.